Hi, I'm Robin Black and this is Robin Thinks and today I am continuing on with Love and Respect by Emerson Egricks. Um, last week I only got through like the introduction in the first half of chapter one because there's there's just so many 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 problems with this book. If anyone was listening when I deconstructed I Kiss Dating Goodbye, one of the things that I talked about quite frequently was how there was a lot of really good valuable content in it. At least I felt there was some really good valuable content in it. I continue to believe that Joshua Harris was just a very sort of good-hearted young man that genuinely wanted to behave in a different way than what he was he was feeling pressured into by culture. I personally am of the opinion that Joshua Harris has a lot of respect for women and girls and it was never really his intention to cause the damage or the harm that he did. And I don't necessarily think that Joshua Harris himself caused the damage and harm. The big problem was he's simply a young man that was raised in patriarchal culture. And he wasn't old enough yet to really understand how all of that patriarchal culture shaped his views of the nature of relationships between men and women. Um, he really wrote this book out of, this is my interpretation. This is how I see things. Um, you know, I look around me. He used examples from his life and from uh, other men that he talked to or other young men that he was influenced by. So there's nothing particularly concerning about the heart or the spirit in which this book was written. Okay. I continue to believe, in fact, that the real problem with I Kiss Dating Goodbye was the adult men that took this book and what are actually probably the most damaging aspects of it. And they turned it into kind of like this national mu movement. Okay. Uh, no nowhere in this book is Joshua Harris talking about purity rings or making some kind of commitment to your father, which, which is, you know, kind of creepy. So I, I talked about how the real problem is not so much purity culture, it's virginity culture, and virginity culture is nothing new. And virginity culture has always been vastly more important to men than to God. So one of the things that I want to talk about with love and respect is something that I call red flag language. How we speak and how we talk is critical to our message. Here's an example. I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. And I think it was in the book Outliers that I first became aware of something called mitigating language. And it's the way in which a subordinate speaks to their superior. One really powerful example of this is how much mitigating language women use when we speak to men. And a perfect example of this is how many times women start their sentences with, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to disturb you, but I'm sorry to, I'm so sorry. Uh, I just wanted to fill in the blank. Okay, we, we, Women immediately apologize for speaking. Another example of mitigating language is things like, um, well, I think that, or I feel that. 
So mitigating language makes it very easy to dismiss what we have to say. I actually started deleting mitigating language from my speech. And what happens is when you delete mitigating language from your speech, what you're doing is you're speaking with authority. Another way of putting that is when you speak to people, you speak to them as a peer, not as a subordinate. And one of the things that I found very interesting is how many men began to have serious issues simply with the way that I spoke. So I have learned how to use language very specifically. And one of the things that I've come to realize is there are some phrases and there are some statements that I call red flag language. When anyone speaks in a certain way, it's a huge red flag for me. I am automatically very careful about how much weight or credibility I give to what this person is saying. And Emerson Egricks uses a huge amount of red flag language. In fact, one of the things that he says here in the first chapter, it's not even a red flag. Imagine a red flag like bursting into flames. Like that is how alarming this thing that he says is, okay? So he starts off, um, I covered like the first half of chapter one. That's as far as I got. But his big revelation, if you will, almost this entire book is based on a verse that he found in Ephesians, Ephesians 5.33. And so um, I'm going to start in this section that is heading towards like his big revelation. And one of the very first things that he says, his first sentence is, for more than 20 years, I had the privilege of studying the Bible 30 hours a week for my pulpit ministry. Okay. Anyone who has been listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, one of the things that was talked about pretty frequently is how Mark Driscoll would boast, he read a book a day. One book every day. Um, I spent about five years being somewhere between unemployed and, and, and severely underemployed. I was so completely dirt broke for about five years. And what I'd spent that five years doing was just reading. I just read and read and read and read and read. And in that five years, I probably read about 300 books. So it is incredibly highly suspicious to have a man saying that he reads a book every single day and looking at sort of what we know of Mark Driscoll now and looking at obviously the, the trajectory of his career, his trajectory as a pastor, I would say that should be a very early indication. When you have a pastor, you have a person that's that's trying to present themselves as an authority that that makes a statement that just almost defies credibility, I think that should be a red flag. So there's a, a gentleman online, his name is Tom Rayner. He, he's pretty well known and he runs a website called uh, Church Answers. And so he took, granted, this is a, like an informal survey that he took, but he's very connected in, I think that his expertise is basically in church administration. But he asked pastors, how much time do you spend every week on sermon prep? 
and only 1% of pastors spent 31 to 33 hours on sermon prep. And usually those pastors are pastors that have to speak multiple times a week. 70% of pastors spend between 10 and 18 hours a week or per sermon on sermon prep. 70% of pastors. And here is Emerson Egricks claiming that in addition to being a pastor, he has uh, 10 years of education and runs a counseling ministry. And he's claiming that he's in that 1% of pastors that spends 30 hours a week studying the Bible. So I find that highly unlikely that's a pretty big red flag for me because I think that you're that you're literally starting off lying, like flat out lying. And while I can't prove that you're lying, the fact that you just sort of slide that in there just so casually, like Mark Driscoll saying, I write a book, I read a book a day. That's concerning to me because I don't think it's a very credible claim. Then he goes on and he talks about um, his PhD in family studies and a master's in communication. This is something that I call credentialing. And people credential for two reasons. In some cases, they credential. They simply say, this is why I feel qualified to speak on this topic. Okay, that's not really a problem. But the other reason that people credential is they are presenting themselves as an irrefutable source. They're saying my education is so much higher and so much greater than yours that you can't question me and you can't challenge me. In other words, they're trying to present themselves as an unimpeachable source. And just simply the fact that Emerson Egricks listed his qualifications isn't really concerning. But when you take his credentials or his qualifications in conjunction with all of the many other things that he says and does in this chapter or the end of this chapter, just this one section, I think that he is trying to credential in the sense of making himself an unimpeachable source. Like you can't argue with his conclusions because he's so well-educated, okay? He goes on to say, and keep in mind, he has a PhD in family studies. Uh, This is the description from Indeed as to what a PhD in child and family studies would would qualify you for, or what does it mean? Um, It's a terminal degree, which means it's the highest level of education you can achieve. It's a terminal degree that teaches students how to study concepts involving human social relationships and development, okay? In other words, methodology, because methodology matters. What he says is, the insight that I finally recognized in scripture and which I later confirmed from reading scientific research. Okay, let's talk about that. As I just mentioned, he has a PhD in family studies. And what that PhD is supposed to do is it is supposed to teach him how to study certain dynamics. So let's talk about the the scientific method. Every single scientist knows that there is something called confirmation bias. 
And so what scientists usually do, social scientists and otherwise, is they start with a question and then they develop a hypothesis. It's their sort of educated best guess as to why it happens, okay? But here's the important part. From their hypothesis, their next step is to test the hypothesis, to determine is my hypothesis true or not, right? And one of the biggest elements of that test that they try and eliminate is their own personal bias. There is a couple that is widely considered to be sort of the premier or predominant experts in marriage or marriage relationships and that and their names are John and Julia Gottman okay so they have purposely set up a laboratory for conducting social experiments so when they say um we came to these conclusions they can show you the data and the research as to how they came to those conclusions but here we have Emerson Egricks what he says is the insight I finally recognized in scripture and which I later confirmed from reading scientific research, which means he didn't go out and conduct scientific research. Oh no, he developed a hypothesis based on something that he read in scripture and then he went out and found scientific research to support it. That is literally the textbook definition of confirmation bias. All you have done is you have gone out and you have found some type of documentation to support your own bias. So then he goes on to say, what was the secret? Actually, it was not a secret at all. This passage of scripture has been there for some 2000 years for all of us to see. In Ephesians 5.33, Paul writes, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And that's from the NIV. Of course, I had read that verse many times. I had even preached on that verse when conducting marriage ceremonies. But somehow, I had never seen the connection between love and respect. Paul is clearly saying that wives need love and husbands need respect. Okay. Anytime someone says the scripture is clear, that to me is a, is a red flag phrase. If the scripture is so clear, why do you feel that you need to spend 30 hours a week studying it? Anytime someone says the scripture is clear, what they're trying to tell you is you have to believe what I say because I'm basing what I say on the Bible. They're trying to say there is no other way for this to possibly be interpreted than what I am telling you. It's trying to give weight to your opinion that you don't have the right to invoke. Okay, so I don't know if I've talked about this before, but there is this really phenomenal online tool called BibleHub.com. And there's a lot of different Bible websites, basically. But one of the reasons that I love this one so much is because... Not only does it have probably 30, 40 different versions of the Bible online that you can just compare and contrast really quickly, it also has what's called the Strong's Concordance. And so what it does is it's, the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek. And so what the Strong's Concordance does, it tells you what the original um, Hebrew or Greek word was. It tells you what part of speech it is. It tells you... Um, 
all the other places that it's been used in the Bible and how it was translated or interpreted in those other places. And this is really important because you have to remember that the Bible was not written in English. It has been translated and interpreted. And one of the things that we're learning about coding is when coders write code, they actually code their own biases and prejudices into the programs that they write, okay? I believe the same thing has happened with the Bible. You have to remember that the Bible has predominantly been translated by white European men. And so white European men are going to have a very specific worldview and it's almost inescapable that that worldview is going to affect how they translate certain verses. And I think that's exactly what has happened here. So I want to look at this verse. He's, he's basically written this entire book off this one verse. And like I said, he saw the verse, he drew all these conclusions from the verse, and then he set out to prove his premise with other scientific material, which is confirmation bias. But let's talk about the verse on which he bases his entire premise. So the verse is Ephesians 5:33, and he took it from the NIV, which says, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Okay. So first let's talk about this word love. Um, in Greek, there are a number of different words for love, for different types of love, okay? So you have uh, eros, which is where we get the word erotic, which is a physical love, a, a sexual love. And then you have um, storga, which is a, it's like a brotherly love. It's a familial love. It's a brotherly or sisterly love. Then you have mania, which is like an obsessive love, right? So you can, you can kind of see from their words of love how they've, uh, how many of these words have kind of like worked their way into our English vocabulary. But the word that Paul uses here is agape. And the word agape is often called Christian love specifically because it refers to a, a sacrificial love. It's sometimes called unconditional love, but based on the fact that it's usually an admonition to human beings and human beings are not actually capable of unconditional love. I don't think that's really an accurate interpretation or an accurate expectation of this love. Human beings are not capable of unconditional love. We are capable of sacrificial love, okay? So I think it's a much more accurate interpretation to view agape as being a sacrificial love. It's the kind of love that places your needs above my own. We are capable of doing that. God can show man unconditional love, but we are not capable of unconditional love. Unconditional love would require perfection, and we are not capable of perfection. Um, so first, the first thing to notice is that in this uh, verse where he's talking about husbands and wives, the love that he's talking about is not eros. It's not a like a physical or a sexual love. It's agape. It's a sacrificial love. So he's, he's telling men to show a sacrificial love towards women, right? But then when 
we get to the admonition to women, the word that they've translated as being respect is actually phobitai. And you may kind of recognize the root of that. Phobitai is the word from which we get phobia. It means to fear. The word fear, much like the word love, has been translated a number of different ways and it means a number of different things. So when the Bible talks about the fear of God, they don't use the word phobia. You're, it's, we're not called to have a phobia of God. So he's literally saying fear. And what's interesting about this, and I this is something I always pay attention to, is whenever a word has been translated a certain way and the root word appears numerous other times in the Bible, but this particular interpretation of this word only appears one time, it's usually a pretty good indication to me that it's been purposely skewed in some way to make something mean what the translators want it to mean. Because if you look at the other, this this particular word, this, this phobitai, it literally only occurs one time in the entire Bible, and that is in this verse, okay? But if you go back and you, you look up the root of it, it's used numerous times. So here's some other um, places where this word is used. In Matthew 1, it says, do not be afraid. Uh, in Matthew 2, 22, it says, he was afraid to go. In Matthew 10, 26, it's used, it says, therefore, do not fear them, or you should fear them nothing. Okay, so one of the things to notice is that in some places it's used to say, do not be afraid. And in other places, it's used to say, do be afraid. So once again, it all depends on how you translate it or interpret it as to whether you should be afraid or you should not be afraid. Okay. So going back to um, Ephesians 5, 33, if you, another thing that you always have to do is anytime you're trying to translate like one specific verse, you always have to hold it up to the, the entirety or of the Bible. Um, I heard a comment recently that I think is so true. And it's, we tend to interpret Jesus through the lens of Paul, but we should be interpreting Paul through the lens of Jesus. So when you're looking at how was Paul, like what was Paul teaching people? How was Paul encouraging these first century churches? What you always have to go do is you have to go back and you look at how, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus act? How did Jesus treat women? What did Jesus um, advocate for? And then you have to hold Paul up to that and say, okay, if Paul is following the, or attempting to follow the teachings and the principles of Jesus, what would this look like? Okay. So if you, if you put these two kind of specific words or concepts together, where he's saying husbands show sacrificial love towards your wife. And then he uses, he doesn't use the word respect. He uses the word fear. He uses a word that has a root of fear. What this verse would say to me is husbands show your wives a sacrificial love so that they do not fear you so that they are not afraid of you. And I think it's, it's been my experience and from what I observe of the world, it is my experience that it is very common for men to believe that they need to rule through fear, that they need to govern through fear, and that, you know, the best way to rule in their own households is for their wives and their children to be 
afraid of them, literally afraid of them. And that's why we have so much abuse. And I think this is a very common teaching in too many Christian churches, even to this day, that your wife and your children should fear you, not respect you, but literally fear you. And I think that there are too many Christian households in which women do actually fear their husbands. They are literally afraid of their husbands. And I don't think this was any different 2000 years ago. So to me, when I read this verse and when I go back and I strip it down to like its original Greek and how these words are used in other places, what I see is Paul saying, husbands show sacrificial love towards your wife so that they do not fear you. They are not afraid of you. I do not in any world believe that God's desire for marital relationships is for women to literally live in fear of their husbands. So I think this is a problem that Paul was addressing is that there's too many husbands that rule their households. Um, They rule in fear. And I don't think you can have healthy relationship when a woman is literally afraid of her husband. So I fully and completely disagree with Emerson Egrick's interpretation of Ephesians 5.33. And this is why I always say, anytime someone says the scripture is clear, that's a red flag that they're going to tell you something that they are expecting you to not be able to disagree with. The Bible is always going to be subject to interpretation. This is why we have so many different versions of the Bible. This is why to this very day, men have spent thousands of years arguing about what the Bible means because it's not that clear. And what's also ironic about this is he literally says that he had read that verse many times. I had even preached on that verse when conducting marriage ceremonies, but somehow... I had never seen the connection between love and respect. So he's read this verse many times. He's quoted this verse many times. He's never seen this connection before. And yet he also wants to claim that what it says is very clear. If it was so clear, why did he read it so many times without ever seeing a connection? I believe that he is making a connection that was never actually intended to be there in the first place. But now he's going to write an entire book on this one principle that he suddenly made this connection about. And I want to read this paragraph that he writes. He he entitles it, How God Revealed the Love and Respect Connection. Okay? Pay attention to that. It says, how God. What he's claiming is, this is something that God revealed to me. So I'm not going to claim that God never, like, reveals things to us. But there are numerous verses in which the Bible talks about uh, what, what it refers to as testing the spirits. In other words, it's very important, you know, when you feel like you've received some kind of revelation from God, it's very important to test it because we all have an ego and there's, there's always going to be things that we read and it appeals to our ego. But there's a verse in Proverbs that I love um, and it says, there is a way that seems right to a man but its end is the way of death. And that's Proverbs 14, 12. So there's going to be certain concepts. Uh, for instance, the concept of male headship. I don't believe that's at all biblical, but that's a concept that's going to pretty much appeal to all men and even to some degree, a lot of women. It seems very like right to us. And yet again and again and again, we see the outcome of 
male headship or male domination as being abuse. Again and again and again, women and children and even uh, men, young men, vulnerable young men are chronically subjected to abuse in these patriarchal systems. That's what it is. It's patriarchy. So let me just read this paragraph here or this section here, which he calls how God revealed the love and respect connection. And I want you to notice how often he says things like, I pondered and my thoughts and I reasoned, okay? <laughs> but then he's going to turn around and say, oh, but God is telling me this. It's even though I'm reasoning and I'm thinking and I'm pondering, it's not me coming to these conclusions. It's God telling me these things, okay? He says, in the beginning, when I was struggling to find help for other marriages as well as for my own, I was not searching for any love and respect connection, but that connection surfaced as I pondered what Ephesians 5.33 is saying. My thought process went something like this. A husband is to obey the command to love even if his wife does not obey this command to respect, and a wife is to obey the command to respect even if the husband does not obey the command to love. So far, so good. Then I reasoned further. A husband is even called to love a disrespectful wife and a wife is called to respect an unloving husband. There is no justification for a husband to say, I will love my wife after she respects me, nor for a wife to say, I will respect my husband after he loves me. At this point in time, I still hadn't seen the love and respect connection. My theory surfaced as God guided me. Do you see the problem between those two phrases? My theory surfaced as God guided me in recognizing the strong link between love and respect in a marriage. I saw why it is so hard to love and respect. When a husband feels disrespected, it is especially hard to love his wife. When a wife feels unloved, it is especially hard to respect her husband. At that point came the illumination that made sense to me and it has made sense to a lot of people ever since, okay? Remember Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So it's very important to not just automatically take your own wisdom or your own interpretation and apply that to scripture. Now, if he read this scripture and he said, wow, there's something really valuable or something important here. And then he went and he actually applied it in his own marriage. Not a problem because every decision that you make is going to have a consequence. Okay. So when he's taking what he believes to be a, a God-given interpretation of the scripture and he applies it to his own marriage, that's no problem because if it doesn't work out for him, the only person that's going to pay the consequences is him, right? The problem comes when you start telling other people, this is what you need to do. That's when we come into a problem. Later, he says, I have often been asked, how can you be so sure the wife primarily needs to feel love and the husband primarily needs to feel respect? My answer comes in two parts. First of all, my experience as a counselor and as a husband confirms this truth. Okay, so what is he saying? It's anecdotal. It's from his own life. You know, earlier, as we talked about, he said, I came up with this premise and then I found scientific research to back up my premise, which he's also claiming was given to him by God. Okay, 
Um, but now I'm going to get to probably the, the greatest um, red flag of them all. Uh, he says, the husband must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Could it be any clearer than that? Paul isn't making suggestions. He is issuing commands from God himself. That is right there from Emerson Egrick's book on page 18. So let's talk about that for a second. What Emerson Egrick's is saying is that Paul isn't making suggestions. Now, I think we've all heard people refer to the Bible as the word of God. First of all, God didn't write the Bible. Nowhere is it ever stated or implied that God wrote the Bible. Is it inspired by God? Is there some type of supernatural hand at work? I believe so. I think so. Absolutely. A lot of people don't. That's fine. What's happening in the New Testament, so you have Jesus and he comes and he basically sets everything on its head. Like everything that they thought, felt, believed up until that time, um, Jesus turned everything upside down. If I could equate what was happening in the first century to today, it would be exactly similar to if all of the Mormons and the Catholics and the Baptists and the Muslims and the Jews um, and even maybe a lot of the atheists or agnostics all recognized there is one God and we all worship the same God. They called themselves, they didn't, they weren't followers of Jesus. They called themselves the people of the way because what they were following was not a person. What they were following was a completely revolutionary set of beliefs. And this is what Paul was focusing on is how do we set aside all of these theological differences and focus on living in a certain way. So this is what all of Paul's letters to the different cities were trying to accomplish is there is a way that they had been living prior and Paul is calling them to a new way of living. So he's trying to settle all of these different you know, what we would call denominational differences. So I think that Paul, more than anyone else, would be absolutely and utterly appalled, little pun there, by Emerson Egrick's claiming that Paul is issuing commands from God himself. That is not even remotely what the letters to the churches are meant to be or are about. Um, so I think it's just, it's very important that as we're reading these books, um, to learn to, to identify some of these, these red flag statements or how people talk. Sheila Gregoire has written an open letter to focus on the family, which details very specifically the, the really damaging teachings in this book. And so I'm going to, um, post a link to her letter because I'm not going to cover like the, the some of the specific things that she's covered. She's already done a great job of that. What I more want to talk about is, you know, how do we deconstruct these books in general? How do we 
learn to recognize some of this these these this red flag language and how do we learn to evaluate these books based on sort of legitimate bible sources one of those is anytime a christian author slides in a verse i would always recommend go to bible hub um look up the Strong's Concordance and look at how that verse has been translated, look at what the original Greek is, look at, you know, where specific words were used in other places in the New Testament and decide for yourself if that's really what you believe that verse is actually saying. Because a lot of times what ends up happening is we get these really problematic teachings that come from really problematic interpretations of scripture in the first place. So the Bible has been really, in my opinion, it has been highly misused, mistranslated, and misinterpreted. And so if we want to begin to address the damage that it's called, a lot of times, it, uh, you know, what's necessary is to go back in and to look at, you know, where did the, the damage actually begin? And I think it begins in many cases in the translation and interpretation of scripture in the first place. But thankfully, we live in a time where every single person has access to really phenomenal tools to be, you don't have to be, uh, you know, you don't have to have your MDiv and you don't have to be like a, a linguistics professor. Uh, anyone can go in and, and kind of, you know, make their own decisions for themselves. And I highly encourage you to do that. So, uh, so, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Make every effort to show yourself as acceptable to God as a teacher who has no cause to be ashamed and who accurately handles the word of truth. Okay? Um, what I find interesting about this person, once again, you know, going back to the Strongs and actually looking up what do these words mean, how are they used, how are they used in other um, parts of the Bible, what I think is very interesting is that all of these different um versions all translate this word um ergaten as being a workman or a worker and the word itself it, it can mean a laborer or a workman in general but it comes from the word ergon which is a toiler or figuratively it is a teacher okay so the most common usage of this word is as a teacher, and yet you have all of these different versions that um, translate this word as being a worker instead of a teacher, okay? So King James Version says, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The NIV says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker, who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And then the new living uh, version says, work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker. One who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Okay. But now what happens if you take that worker and you trans and you, you flip it out for teacher. Now, what do we have? We have study to show yourself approved unto God a teacher that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Or the NIV, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a teacher 
who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Do you see how much that changes the entire meaning of the verse depending on whether you use the word worker or whether you use the word teacher? And what I interpret that verse as meaning is be very, very, very careful how you use the word of God, how you teach the word of God to others. Because you will be held accountable. You will be held responsible. The Bible talks about how very few people are called to teach the Bible because of the much higher standards or expectations that teachers are uh, you know, placed under. So what this tells me is be very, very, very careful how you teach the the Bible to other people. You need to correctly handle the word of truth. You need to correctly explain the word of truth, which to me is exactly what Emerson Egricks is not doing. He is taking his own um, prejudice, his own bias, his own viewpoint, his own worldview, and then using the Bible to back up his own worldview. And even worse, he's saying it came from God. I got this from God. This isn't, he's denying, this didn't come from me. It's not me saying this. This isn't my intellect, my wisdom, my intelligence. Oh, no, no, no. This is from God. So let me just read 2 Timothy 2.15. King James Version says, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The NIV says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And then the New Living uh, Version says, work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Okay. Um, What I find interesting about this person, once again, you know, going back to the Strong's and actually looking up what do these words mean, how are they used, how are they used in other um, parts of the Bible, what I think is very interesting is that all of these different um, versions all translate this word um, ergaten as being a workman or a worker. And the word itself, it it can mean a laborer or a workman in general, but it comes from the word ergon, which is a toiler, or figuratively, it is a teacher, okay? So the most common usage of this word is as a teacher, and yet you have all of these different versions that translate this word as being a worker instead of a teacher, okay? But now what happens if you take that worker and you trans and you you flip it out for teacher now what do we have we have study to show yourself approved unto god a teacher that needeth not to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth or the niv do your best to present yourself to god as one approved a teacher who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth Do you see how much that changes the entire meaning of the verse depending on whether you use the word worker or whether you use the word teacher? And what I interpret that verse as meaning is be very, very, very careful how you use the Bible when it comes to teaching other people, okay? 
I talked earlier about mitigating language. And I think that there's probably no more proper and appropriate place for using mitigating language than when it comes to teaching the Bible or using the Bible to back up your own opinion or your own ideas or thoughts about the world. Okay. There's an episode of The Good Wife, if anybody remembers that show. And it's, there's a federal judge and she makes all of the attorneys in her courtroom either start or finish their statements with, in my opinion. Okay. And this really throws off the attorneys because you know, these are highly educated, highly experienced attorneys. And so there's a certain level of hubris in which they, on the one hand, they acknowledge that, yes, whatever they're saying is technically their opinion, but it's such, an, it's a, such a highly educated opinion and it's such a, a, uh, a highly paid for opinion that there's almost an element to which they sort of want to believe it's not really an opinion anymore. But at the end of the day, it's always going to be opinion. Anyone who takes it upon themselves to translate or interpret the Bible, at the end of the day, the only thing that any of us can actually offer is our opinion about what it says or what it means. So what you always want to be very, very, very careful of is people who use concrete language when it comes to the Bible. So mitigating language is the language of a subordinate to a superior and concrete language would be the language that a superior uh, uses with subordinates, which is basically um, what I say, you can take it as a command. So what Emerson Egricks does is he ties his opinion into the Bible, number one, and then number two, he literally comes right out and states that Paul is not advising the churches. He's literally issuing commands directly from God, which in my opinion is absolutely positively, not only is it categorically untrue, but it is highly disturbing that Emerson Egricks would say that. So I find just a huge amount of what I call red flag language all throughout this first chapter, um, all throughout this book. And this is what I want to call attention to is I want people, I hope that people will begin to, to see and understand and recognize some of this red flag language. I think that anytime a person takes it upon themselves to try and teach the Bible to other people, it needs to be with a, a massive degree of humility and understanding that I am a mere mortal vessel. And I think Paul understood that. And that's also why I think it's highly disconcerting that Emerson Egricks would make this claim that Paul is issuing commands directly from God. Um, so I'm going to um, close up there and uh, we'll continue with this next week. If, if this has helped you in any way, please, please, please like, share, comment. Please leave a star rating. If you can go to iTunes and subscribe on iTunes, that, that would just like help me immensely. Um, but more than anything, if you could just kind of help me get the word out and let people know that this podcast is available. 
there are just a, a huge number of deeply damaged people that have been damaged by spiritual abuse and the mishandling and the mistreatment of the Bible. And I think that there, there's just so many uh, indications of that here. So um, I'm going to leave a link to Sheila Gregoire's open letter to focus on the family about this book. I just strongly recommend that you read it because she really lays out a number of very concerning specifics in this book that I haven't got to. I'm, I'm not sure I ever will get to them. Um, but thank you so much for listening and uh, I hope to see you next week.